Well, the last time I talked to you about uh, the trip I once made to visit our military personnel in Bosnia after the war there, I mentioned the name of Lieutenant General Stephen Blum, who was the uh, commander of our NATO peacekeeping forces there at that time and who took our group uh, to visit a war-torn village uh, where there were still several unexploded landmines in the area. And uh, that caused him to say to us, you walk where I walk and nowhere else. And I mentioned that uh, our response was 100% compliance uh, with that order. But what I did not talk about or tell you is that before we ever left the base to go to that village, one of General Blum's assistants uh, gave us another instruction, and that was, do not eat anything and do not drink anything while you are there. And so we go into this village, and uh, while there, we visit uh, the home of a woman uh, that had been partially destroyed by a bomb during the course of uh, that war. And this woman was now living in just two rooms of that house that uh, remained standing. I mean, her life was just uh, almost down to nothing. She had very little. She was just scratching out this uh, very meager existence. And the whole thing was just, you know, very, very kind of pathetic and, and horrible in so many ways. Uh, but then, uh, as uh, we went into that house, unbeknownst to the general and uh, his aides, uh, this woman, uh, who was probably in her 30s at the time, uh, had put on her best dress, and she made coffee and pastries for the members of our group, which was heartwarming and also heartbreaking at the very same time. Uh, given the fact that we were under this order not to eat anything or drink anything while we were there, and therefore we could not accept her hospitality, her warm welcome to her home, such as it was, and this gesture that probably meant you know, a whole lot uh, to her. And so as we were standing in uh, what was an outdoor covered porch that was once an indoor dining room of this house, here she comes from the kitchen with these refreshments, placing them down on a makeshift table. And in that moment, uh, Lieutenant General Blum looks at the members of the group and he says two words, eat it. Uh, well, uh, a number of people in the group did not. A number of people in the group did. I did, and uh, quite frankly, it went down just fine. But the point is, that the rules about eating were changed by a higher authority who had a very different purpose in mind. And so today we come uh, past the halfway point of the short epiphany season uh, to once again encounter a piece of scripture uh, that on the face of it seems almost totally irrelevant to uh, you and me in the world that we live in today. But if you dig into it, you find that nothing could possibly be further from the truth. The issue on the table, if you'll pardon the expression, is the issue of what to eat or not to eat, uh, when, where, why, or why not. And the context for all of this is the ancient Greek city of Corinth, uh, which is located about a half an hour west of Athens by today's uh, travel time, and it is still there. Uh, and St. Paul uh, had gone to Corinth 
himself, and there he preached the gospel. People came to faith, and the Corinthian church uh, was born. But as I've noted before, uh, the Corinthian church was a troubled church. I mean, from the jump, really, from, from, from the get-go, in part because uh, Corinth was this uh, very large cosmopolitan uh, city through which people from all over the known world uh, were passing. Also, it was a place that had a, a reputation for a lot of decadence, a lot of vices, uh, including sexual immorality in a number of different forms. And it was also a very polytheistic place that included uh, temples, at least a dozen of them, to pagan gods to whom sacrifices were made. And so this was nothing like the church in Jerusalem, for example, which grew up out of this very religious, monotheistic uh, culture of uh, Judaism. And then to make matters even worse or more complicated, the culture of Corinth was beginning to have an impact on the church in Corinth. And so today, uh, for example, with respect to the American church, we know in recent times that more American Christians are adjusting their religious beliefs in order to conform to their political beliefs rather than the other way around. And that is having an impact on our unity, on our witness, on our ability to influence the culture in which we live. In the city of Corinth, uh, the impact was also disunity and division within the church over a number of different issues, some of which were so contentious that the leaders of the Corinthian church actually write a letter to St. Paul, who by this time is now in Ephesus, about 250 miles uh, to the east, across the Aegean Sea in western modern-day Turkey, in order to get him to intervene, to help them, give them uh, guidance before the Corinthian church just crashes and burns. Paul's response to that letter was to write a letter back to them, and that letter is known as 1 Corinthians, or St. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Most popular part of which, of course, is chapter 13, uh, the famous love chapter, which is often uh, read at weddings, which is great even though the original context really wasn't marriage, but rather divisions in the church, a hint of which comes at the beginning of today's lesson from chapter 8. The issue to which Paul is responding, the division to which he is addressing himself, has to do with whether uh, it was permissible for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to altars in one of those pagan temples of Corinth because what would happen is that the meat that was uh, not burned on the altar of sacrifice would then be consumed by the ones who made that sacrifice. And here's the rub, also often by their Christian friends. Or if that didn't happen, often the excess or leftover meat from the sacrifice would be taken to the markets and it would be sold to the general population, including members of, of the Corinthian church who would consume it. And that becomes the issue, the contentious division in the church, with some saying, this is perfectly uh, permissible. This has nothing to do with our uh, Christianity, not to mention the fact that in its uh, roots in Judaism, Jesus, of course, frees us from any dietary restrictions and what we know uh, as the Old Testament. 
but with others in the church saying, oh no, this is a sin. This is an abomination. And it is tantamount to participating in idol worship yourself. So the doing so is a total cave-in. It's a compromise of our faith in Jesus. And I don't know what position you would have taken if you would have been a member of the Corinthian church at that time. But the question is, who's right and who's wrong? Is this permissible because it has nothing to do with our Christianity? We're followers of Jesus. Or is it an abomination that compromises our faith and our witness for Jesus? Or, let me ask it to you this way. What does it mean to be a Christian in a secular worldly society that is loaded with idols and false gods? What does it mean for us to be a church that is unified around the person and the spirit of Jesus and to be guided by his word with respect to our behavior and what we do or what we do not do in our lives because it has everything to do with our Christian faith. This is why this passage is absolutely relevant to people like you and me and churches like ours today. But the question is, well, what then is the answer? To meet or not to meet? What do we do? And as you heard, if you were one of those people in the Corinthian church who was counting on Paul for a rule, for an up or down yes or no, right or wrong answer, you obviously would have been disappointed. Because while there are some things that are always wrong for every Christian all the time, in this case, and some others to which it applies, Paul's answer is more along the lines of, well, sort of depends. And so the first thing that he does is he takes some heat out from under the whole thing when he reminds the Corinthian believers uh, that they are not, in fact, worshiping idols. Number one, because they are Christians, they are followers of Jesus. But number two, because idols, in Paul's words, do not, in fact, exist. So you are not spiritually engaging with an idol because the idol, the false god, is not there. And then he goes on to say, and so with respect to eating meat sacrificed to idols, well, you're kind of free uh, to do that. You can go one way or you can go the other. And uh, you're no worse off if you uh, do it. You're no better off if you do do it. This is not about your closeness to God. Uh, but just when you think that that maybe settles the issue, you discover that Paul isn't finished. It's as if he goes on and he says, no, no, wait a minute, not so fast here. Uh, because even though you might be free, uh, there's another truth in play here, and it's, this is one for all of us, and it's really kind of tricky. And it has to do with the fact that just because something isn't wrong, that does not mean that it's always right either. Or as St. Paul puts it in the passage, be careful about what you do with your freedom or your liberty 
so that you don't cause another person inside or outside of the church to stumble, that is to spiritually stumble. Because the issue here is not about the meat. It's not about the menu. The issue here is about my heart, my conscience. It's about my motives, my faith, and my desire for another person to come to know and fully understand the freedom that Jesus has won for us if they do not yet fully understand that in or outside of the community of faith. And so the question then becomes, am I willing, even though I'm free, to lose some of my freedom for the sake of my witness to another person? So that that person uh, will not look at me eating meat sacrificed to idols and say, what kind of a Christian is this person? Their faith must not be that big of a deal to them. And instead, look at the Christians of Corinth and say, wow, I, I want to know more about the Jesus that makes that kind of a difference in my friend's life. But it can go either way, because sometimes fellowshipping with your pagan friends is the very thing that draws them closer to you and therefore draws them closer to Jesus through you. But then sometimes our behavior can cause the people around us to say, well, she's a Christian, he's a Christian. And so Paul says you're free, but just because something isn't wrong doesn't make it right. And then he answers it for himself where he says, for me, if meat, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, causes someone to stumble, then I will not eat meat. I will lose my freedom. I will make the sacrifice for the sake of my witness because this isn't about my closeness to God, it's about theirs. And the thing that drives all of this is at the very top of the passage today, uh, the, things that, the thing that is at the top of Paul's list, and that is, of course, love, love. He says, knowledge puffs up. And you know the Greeks, they love their knowledge. But love builds up. And so am I willing to do something or not do something in order to build up another person in love? For example, and there are many examples, the Bible does not teach us that consuming alcohol is a sin. Now, uh, drunkenness, that's another story. Underage, that's another story. Obey the laws of the land, Romans 13. Uh, but Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Jesus uh, drank wine at the Celebration of the Passover. He used wine to institute uh, the Lord's Supper. St. Paul tells Timothy, drink wine instead of water. Because he knew that safe drinking water was sometimes at a premium in those days. Even heaven itself, according to the prophet Isaiah, is portrayed as a feast of well-aged wines. And so I know this. I have this knowledge But if I go out with a friend 
whose parents were both raging alcoholics. Or I know that alcohol has just about destroyed them or their life. And chances are pretty good that I will pass. Not because it would be wrong to do it, but because I am willing to lose part of my freedom for the sake of my connection with that brother or sister and their experience in this life. Because knowledge without love creates distance. Sometimes it even creates arrogance. But knowledge together with love can make you a blessing to all kinds of people, both in and outside the church. Although it is also true that when you love, you will lose some of your freedom. Anybody married here? You know this. But even if you're not married, you still know this, that if you really love somebody, if you really love something, then you are no longer free to do everything that you just feel like doing anytime you want to do it with your time, with your money, with your body, with your life. Because when you love, the rules change in response to a higher authority with an elevated purpose for your life. Just like the general changed the rules of eating and drinking for the sake of our connection to that poor woman in that bombed out house in that village in Bosnia. First Corinthians 13, the great love chapter says, if I have all knowledge but I don't have love, I am nothing but put it together. And the world is your oyster when it comes to witnessing to your faith, whatever decision you happen to make. And all of it begins with Jesus, whose love for you was not very easy, whose love for you and me was a cross so that we could be free to serve him by serving one another and putting another person ahead of ourselves. And that's what enabled uh, our visit to that woman and her house in that village to end with a Lutheran pastor giving a Christian blessing to a Muslim woman in the middle of Ramadan, which had to have broken somebody's rules. And so the next time you have a decision to make in your life about how to behave, what to do or what not to do, and whether this is really worth a division in your life, ask yourself, are any of the options on the table ones that need to come off the table because they are clearly contrary to God's will for my life. And if the answer is no, uh, then think about the fact that it's still true, at least sometimes, that just because something isn't wrong, that still doesn't make it right, at least until you ask the question, what does my friend need from me? And how can I lose some of my freedom 
in order to shine the light of the radical love of Jesus into their life so that as God gives grace, they might also be free to live this new life. And so then with that, you can go out. And you can lose your freedom, or better yet, use your freedom. Exercise your freedom. Whatever decisions you make for the glory of God so that others may experience their new life in Christ, their freedom through his cross until all of us eat together in the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We rise to confess our faith.